Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. And I thought, I'm going to do this experiment. I'm going to say this prayer, God, I'm willing to do your work. I'm just going to say it again and again and again. And I'm going to see if meaningful work shows up for me. In life, fortune favors the bold. And I think it's when we truly follow, courageously follow our soul, that life begins to truly conspire and support us. Maybe not in the ways we thought, but in the ways that we need. I remember cussing after my meditation because I knew that's what I heard. And it was like, the moment you know, you're accountable. And I was like, oh, no. And I felt that I was on the precipice of calling that night. And I did feel like what you said was that all of these things were coming to a head. We only think we need the money a month before or a week before or whatever because it's for our own security. But life just knows that it'll come if you get out of the way. I'm trying to give it to you, but get out of the way. And it was then that I felt, I can't stop doing this. I mean, this is, this was maybe the thing that I was looking for all along. That day, my life changed, you know, Mm -hmm. because I have moments in my life when I was finally seen by someone. There is a natural human attraction to people who are vulnerably going for it. Because every time I was broke, I survived. The times that my accounts were negative, I survived. So I never had this this feeling of money to hold on to it. If you feel a calling, take the risk, jump, move, Mm. act. Life is short. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, and we are back with another episode from the end of the tunnel. If this is your first time listening to the show, here's what you are in for. I typically interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, and basically anyone who has gone above and beyond to be the change that they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements, or they create films, or they write books that inspire people. And this week, you're in for a special treat because it is our annual compilation episode. So the last one we did was in 2020, and that episode was about navigating mental health. And we had clips from about five or six of my past podcast guests telling stories about how they personally navigated mental health. And so this year's compilation episode is about taking a leap of faith. And I've curated clips from some of my most inspiring episodes with guests like spoken word artist and musician Saul Williams, the top five regrets of the dying author Bronnie Ware, 
We're going to hear a clip from the singing doctor, Dr. Steven Eisenberg, as well as author and motivational speaker, Coot Blackson. And we'll also hear from plant-based restaurateur, Mariana Blanco, as well as Sounds True Publishing founder, Tammy Simon. And all of them are sharing very personal leap of faith stories. And my hope is that if you are on the verge of taking a leap of faith, but a part of you just wants to play it safe, hearing their stories will inspire you to go for it. And in doing so, you will inspire other people in your circle of influence to do the same. So sit back and relax. And we're going to dive into this compilation on taking leaps of faith. We'll start with a clip from Lorea Gaston, who started a charity in Los Angeles called Lunch on Me. And before Lorea had her formal nonprofit, she basically started this thing on the fly by improvising a charitable event to help feed 500 homeless people in downtown Los Angeles. And what I like about this story is how she literally just started without much of a plan But here's what tends to happen. When you get the ball rolling, you'll see that opportunities are available all around you, right? But you have to take the first step by putting yourself out there and not worry too much about how it's all going to happen. So she had this idea to feed 500 people and we'll see in the clip how it all turned out. It was a situation where I didn't think that many people would come. So in my head, I didn't really know what I was doing on that scale because I I had no background in in the nonprofit world. But I was like, people were calling me. I I had only invited about 20 friends that I knew that were all in the industry that I was like, okay, I know they'll come out. And everyone was calling me, asking specific questions. And I realized I didn't really have the answer because I just wanted to help people. I just want to show up and help people. So they were like, well, how much food are we going to do? And I'm like, let's feed 500. Like I was just throwing out numbers. I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's just go for it. So I didn't, re- I really didn't know. So I'm like, okay, let's, let's feed 500 people. They were like, okay, how many people do you think you'll need? And they were like, well, what do you want us to bring? I'm like, can everyone, I asked everyone the same thing. I was like, I'll make shirts. Can you guys just buy your shirts? So we're all in the same uniform. Basically like there was no profit on them. I was just charging like the price of the shirt can you guys just and then everyone bring something so basically i decided on vegan pizza cold pressed juices and two days before it kind of divinely aligned because i'm like where am i gonna get 500 cold pressed juices from you know two days before i'm walking into a whole foods to get like my own food and suja the juice company is there like handing out samples. And I was just like, I literally walked up to them. I'm like, hey, I'm like, have you guys ever done anything for the homeless? And they're like, no, not really. I was like, I'm doing an event um, in two days. Do you think maybe you guys can give us some of your juices? Because it's like they were giving it away for free in Whole Foods. So I'm like, obviously you don't have a problem giving away free product. And I didn't really know anything about, like I said, sponsorships and all that. So she's like, you want to give it to the homeless? She's like, well, how many people are you? I'm like, 500 is our number. She's like, no problem. 48 hours later, Sue just shows up with 500 mm. cold pressed juices. <laughs> and then people were showing up and I, I was asking everyone to just bring healthy snacks, whatever that was. I didn't really care. Then I had found like this vegan pizza company. I called them and was like, hey, I need to feed 500 people, but I don't have enough money to feed 500 people. 
So I was like, can you guys help me? And like, I literally started calling places. I didn't care. I was just like, we want to do this. We don't really have the, the, the funds to do this. Can you give it to me at cost? And the pizza guys gave it to me at cost. Did you get that idea to call them up after the Suja uh, situation? Did you, were you like, oh my God, I can get people to just donate this stuff? No, I just felt like closed mouths don't get fed. I got to ask whoever I can ask. I just, I didn't even, I, it was just one of those situations. I was like, I was honest. I'm like, this is what I'm working with. What can we do with this? But you were prepared to pay for it yourself. Yeah, I did pay for it myself. I didn't, at the time, I didn't ask people for money. I didn't ask anyone for anything because I didn't care. <laughs> Where were you getting the money from? It was my savings. So it wasn't even money that was you were generating through income. It was just money you were, you'd saved up. Yeah. And I felt like at the end of the day, like I would never go broke from helping. Like I always felt like there was this abundance. Like I just, I never had the scarcity complex. I have been dirt poor. I have, I mean, I had said no to jobs in the industry that weren't, that were against my moral compass and had to sleep in my car for a month. I never would sell my soul and my morale for money ever in my life. And I never felt like money, I never felt that scarcity complex because every time I was broke, I survived. The times that my accounts were negative, I survived. So I never had this this feeling of money to hold on to it. So this is an important point. What financial position were you in at the time? I know you had savings, but were you making a good good salary? No, well, no, I was no, I was just building my brand. I had put all my savings into coming to LA. So I didn't have I just remember this is what's crazy. Right after that happened, I had less than $1,500 in my account and I gave away $1,000. On that day, on that first day of feeding the homeless? No, it was maybe like a week later. I went, that's a whole nother story. But a week later, <laughs> I took $1,000 out of my 1500 It was probably 14 something, like 1490 And I took $1,000 out and put $100 in 10 envelopes and gave them away. To who? To 10 people who were on Skid Row. Wow. So you had fifteen hundred dollars in your to your name. You took out a thousand, mm-hmm. and you gave it all out to ten people. Yeah. On and the Row. craziest part was because it came to me in my meditation. I heard it clearly, but when I first heard it, I was like, "Maybe I'm hearing this wrong." Because in my head, <laughs> I kept hearing, "No, I'm serious." Because I'm like, "There's no You're way." Like, okay, is it? You mean take ten dollars out and give $1? exactly? That's how I felt. <laughs> I'm like a hundred dollars, ten dollars for ten people. In my head, I thought I wasn't grounded enough because I was like, "You clearly are not here." I heard it clearly three times. This is what's so crazy. I'll never forget this day because this is what made me understand the power of being detached from money and being being attached to giving. I heard it three times. Then I was like, damn it. I remember cussing after my meditation because I knew that's what I heard. And it was like, the moment you know, you're accountable. And I was like, oh no. So long story short, I end up doing it. And I'm like thinking like, oh Lord, when is like, what this is, I mean, now I probably have 400 something dollars in my account, in my name. Like that's it. And so long story short, I gave it to 10 different people. It's crazy because fast forwarding now, five years later, I know all those people from Skid Row. And I have to tell you all their stories because half of them are all in apartments now. And that money had to do with their turning point. But that's a whole nother thing. This was just 
the obedience I heard from being so connected to a higher source, higher power and, and moving from the space of God love. That's what I believe because the lesson that happened, this is what's so crazy. That happened to me. I gave the last envelope away. I got in my car. As soon as I got in my car, I got a call to make $3,000 for half a day for like six hours of work. (laughs) But it happened as soon as I turned my car on. And I just started crying because the first thing I heard was when you hand out, God will fill up your cup before you even have a chance to grab it. Oh, my God. That was Lorea Gaston, the founder of Lunch on Me. And if you want to hear her full episode, it's episode number nine, and it's one of my personal favorite episodes. She's got another great story in that episode about how she went to live on Skid Row in downtown L.A. and what that experience was like. And this one time when she had to panhandle for money to buy a tarp for the rain that was about to happen. And it was such a great story. So I highly recommend definitely checking out her full episode, which is, again, episode number nine, when you can. Next, we are going to hear from one of my biggest inspirations, Mr. Coot Blackson. Coot knew that he was destined to be a teacher and a transformational speaker early on, meaning like literally as young as eight years old, but he had no idea how it would happen, right? And as a teenager, he started taking these leaps of faith and trusting that everything was going to work out. And in this clip, Coot shares the story of finding his path and taking a huge leap of faith by leaving his home in London and getting a one-way ticket to America with very little money to pursue his path of becoming a transformational teacher. If this vision is real, provide the way. I, of myself, don't know how to do this. So I started meditating, which I tended to do back then a lot when I was facing a a mountain. And I'm in the library of my school, age 17, 18. I'm in the library, meditating, like literally. Someone walks up to me, hands me a magazine called The Economist. I don't read The Economist, famous magazine, but I feel, you know, I feel the energy. I think it's so important that we learn to follow the flow of life. I open the magazine going, something's here. I look at the back of the magazine, it says the American government's giving away 55,000 green cards in the green card lottery. My eyes pop out. I feel chills in my body. I feel the sense that I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to win, I'm going to win this thing. So I enter it. I apply through this law firm. Cut a long story short, this was in April. I was told by September the 18th or the 19th, if you don't hear, then you haven't won. Every day. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to practice and see if this spiritual stuff that I've been reading about, the law of attraction, creative visualization, if this stuff really works. So I start visualizing myself in the US. I draw a fake green card on a piece of paper, color of green. I'm imagining Bill Clinton shaking my hand and welcoming me to the US. I'm visualizing every day. Every day I go to the mailbox, haven't won. Every day I go to the mailbox, no letter. By September the 18th, I'm now pissed off. This shit isn't working. God, you've just abandoned me. What the hell is going on? The next day, I think it was the 19th, I go to the mailbox. I'm sure that it's going to be there. Nothing. Now I'm mad. I'm pissed off, mad, upset. I feel totally abandoned by the universe. I said, screw it. I'm going to pack my bags and I'm just going to go to the US. I mean, it's illegal, but I'm going to just go. And that night we get a phone call. My mother picks up the phone. She says, cool, it's for you. 
turns out to be the law firm I applied for the green card through, says, we don't believe it, but you have won a green card. We just got the notification yesterday and you won a green card. And I was hugging my mom and I'm screaming and I'm jumping and I'm so excited celebrating. And then I hear this voice in the middle of my jubilation. And it says, why are you so surprised? Did you think you weren't going to win? Like, why are you acting so surprised? And it was one of those sobering moments of like trust the universe. That moment, man, of winning that green card has been a pivotal moment throughout my life because there's been many moments I felt like giving up along the way, especially in the beginning stages. But remembering that moment and feeling like there is a deeper intelligence functioning in my life, there is a deeper guiding force that is unfolding my destiny. That moment of winning the green card is what gave me so much faith when I felt like giving up. And so that's when I packed two suitcases and did my interview and what have you, but packed two suitcases, one suitcase full of books, self-help books, and one suitcase full of clothes and told my, my mom and dad I'm leaving. And my mom gave me, I forget if it was $800 or $1,000, let's say $1,000 at most, showed up in LA. 18 and a half, 19 years old, showed up in Los Angeles, landed, asked the taxi guy, take me somewhere safe and cheap where I can stay for a few days, takes me to Venice freaking beach, which was bonkers back then. And that began my journey in the US and it was tough and hard. And first weeks I cried my eyes out, wondering what the hell am I doing here and called my mother. But here's the thing, I knew, I knew I couldn't go back. I knew there was no way back. It's like, I think when we, when we have this hesitation and we take action with, with the sense of, well, there's always a way out. Sometimes when you do burn that bridge and you commit fully to something, it forces you to tap into an internal resource. When you know there's, there's no choice, there's like no retreat, no, no, no retreat, you have to move. It forces you to tap into an inner resource that sometimes you don't have to when you make excuses or you're rationalizing. Or you think, well, if it doesn't work out, or you're not 100% committed. And so because I knew that there was no way back, my father was waiting for me to crawl back, and I knew there was mm-hmm. no way back. It made me dig into parts of myself, into parts of my resilience that I think I didn't even know were there. And so that began my journey. That was Coot Blackson and Coot told so many great leap of faith stories that we're actually going to hear from him again later on in this compilation episode. But in the meantime, I would like to introduce you to Bronnie Ware. So Bronnie is the author of the viral blog post called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, which ended up becoming a best-selling book, and it changed her life. And hers is also an incredible episode with so many amazing plot twists and turns. And she's just a great storyteller. And in this story, she talks about how she was moonlighting as a musician while she was working as a palliative caregiver, which is where she learned about those top five regrets. And anyway, she wanted to make music and something inside of her was nudging her to record an album. But the problem was she didn't have any money. And I'm sure some of you can relate to that dilemma of having this great idea, but you don't have a lot of money, yet your heart is still guiding you to do this thing, to take this leap. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, let's see what Bronnie did. Who knows? Maybe it'll inspire you to do something similar. I knew it was time to record my first album. Everything in me said, yep, go and do it. And I had all my musicians lined up and everything else, but 
I didn't have any money to do it. I had hardly any money to do it. It's certainly not enough to to record it, but it was just such a strong guidance within me, just like, yes, do it. So I just started getting organised and got everyone in place, and that included my producer who was also my guitarist, and he was a married man with two kids. He had big financial responsibilities and time responsibilities and and then it got up to, I went away on a little singing camp for a couple of days in anticipation and we were due to start on the Monday. I was moving into a house, uh, my favourite house sit, and I was house sitting a lot then, into my favourite house sit that weekend. But on the Friday before we were due to start, I still didn't have the money and I was $5,000 short, which is a lot of money to come up with out of the blue. And I started, it had been building for about a week, like, okay, I've followed this, I've honoured this, but I am getting really, really scared here because I've got to pay this guy and I've got to pay all the other musicians and what am I going to do? And so on the Friday evening I went and sat on my meditation cushion in a panic really, just in such a panic thinking what am I going to do? I was really scared, very, very scared. And so I meditated and just said, you know, I'm really scared here, I don't know what to do. And, And I just got, let it go. Just let it go. Go out and have a, just forget about it for tonight. Go out and have a good night. And so I went out with, with a mate and I was going, I had planned to go and see a band and I was on my going to do it on my own. And then a friend got in touch and said, she wanted to go to this bookshop that has a cafe and how about we go there? I said, yeah, sure, let's do that. So it felt like a, a good distraction from my own head to be with someone else. And then she ran into another friend of hers And while my mate was like our mutual friend was off looking at the books, I sat down with with her friend and we just got chatting and she said, you know, tell me about your life. My life's really awful. It's crap at the moment. That's what she said. My life's crap. Tell me about your life right now. And I said, well, actually my life's pretty crap too right now. I said, I'm waiting on a miracle and I'm I'm right at the 11th hour and I'm really scared and I don't know what I'm going to do. So tell me about your life instead. And she said, no, no, I want to hear about yours. Tell me what, what is all this about? And so I just said, well, I'm due to start recording my album on Monday and I don't have any money and I'm, you know, I need at least $5,000 and I'm really scared and I don't know what to do, but I just felt my heart just said to do this and get on with it. And she said, well, my life is crap because I'm going through a really shocking divorce and I've wanted to support the arts for years and my husband wouldn't let me support the arts, so I'm going to use the money I'm getting from him to support the arts. I'm going to turn up on Monday morning at your house with $5,000 in cash. (laughs) And And she did. Yeah, I just burst into tears, of course, and... And I just thought to myself, how do we ever question it? Because we don't need it before we need it. And I got it when I needed it. But we always think we need it before that. And I'd had little leaps of faith prior to that time. And I'd always landed on my feet. Someone, you know, there was always a solution was presented at the the last minute. But because this one was so large and involved so many other people, it just seemed huge. But it just taught me that we only think we need the money a month before or a week before or whatever because it's for our own security. But life just knows that it'll come if you get out of the way. I'm trying to give it to you, but get out of the way. And so, yeah, she turned up and she 
she just said, I just want to have my name on the album cover as the executive producer. So I said, sure. And she just came in, didn't want to get involved, just lay on the floor on the, the thick, lush carpet of this house and just sat there while we started recording the album and came to the launch and, yeah, it was it. didn't stay in touch or anything, was just quite detached from the whole process but was a, a guardian, you know, was, was an angel. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Man, I love this story. We don't need the money until we need it. And don't let the idea of not having the resources stop you from taking the next step. Bronnie is another guest of mine that shared many wonderful stories throughout her episode, and I highly recommend listening to that one as well. In fact, I recommend listening to all of the full episodes of all of the guests that I am including in this compilation, because that's why I'm including them. They have such great stories. But Bronnie's episode is number 24, if you want to listen to that one sooner rather than later. So definitely check that out. Okay, so next we are going to hear from one of my favorite people in the world. His name is Logan Gelbrick. And Logan is a former professional baseball player turned gym owner. He is the founder of one of the most popular CrossFit-like gyms on the West Coast of America, which is called Deuce. And in this clip, Logan shares the leap of faith that he took when he transitioned from training people in the local park to actually getting a brick and mortar business and creating Deuce and how he also had some serious financial obstacles to overcome in the process. So let's hear about his leap of faith and how the whole thing went down. So you guys were in the park for a few years training. I'm assuming that you and Danny got to a point where you realized, hey, we have enough people. If we wanted to open up a brick and mortar, we could. And then it sounds like the whole park city council thing that happened kind of forced your hand. Was that a tough leap to make or was that a more of an organic like, okay, we're going to do it anyway. So now is the time. Let's go ahead and and try to find a space and et cetera. 
It wasn't tough out of sheer ignorance. <laughs> Naivety. <laughs> yeah, which I, I mentioned in the book, the hiding hand principle. It's like, this is to our advantage. You know, like, uh, I think there's a false notion. Gladwell talks about it in, I think, Blink or whatever. The false notion that more information is always better. You know, and it's like, if we really went to the whiteboard and broke out the pie charts and dialed in all the predictive metrics, you know, and consulted with a bunch of other people's opinions, we would have found a lot of great reasons not to make that leap. And the the hiding hand principle is sort of the classic example is um, folks digging a mine shaft. You know, it's like there's a certain amount of planning. What's the budget? How many man hours? How difficult is this going to be to sort of bore this hole two miles into the side of this mountain? And then you start. And then Two months in, six months in, you have more information than when you started and you're a little bit dirtier than when you started and you're more tired and you're, you have less money, but you, you've started and it, you can't go back now. So you keep digging further and it takes longer than you thought, costs more money than you thought, et cetera, et cetera. And if you would have had that information to begin with, you would have maybe not done it in the first place. And so not having all that information allows us to, I think, engage in things that maybe we'd otherwise prevent ourselves from, you know, and I do the mental experiment all the time. It's like, I get the benefit of sitting right now with you in this conversation. And I can sort of say that at this moment, the story ends well, like it's successful. Like we can say that objectively, but if I were to put myself knowing what I know now, Back at the beginning, mind you, I didn't have the opportunity to know that it would work out. It still feels pretty, it feels hard to go back out to the park for day one. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. makes me want to, it makes me want to puke to think about it. And I know that it ends up well. I didn't yeah. then. Right. I've used that uh, analogy of the staircase before. It's, you know, you can't see the end of the staircase. All you can see is the first 100 steps. So you think it's a 100 step process. But once you get up to the hundred steps, you see there's actually a thousand step process. But if you uh, if you saw the thousand steps, you probably wouldn't have even attempted to go the first hundred steps. So it's by design. That's exactly it. You talked in the book, Go Right, about how when you first found the spot, the garage, the classic just garage, you guys, you and Danny built it out yourself. And mm-hmm. then it was like a four-month delay that you had not budgeted for. And uh Talk a little bit about how you dug yourself out of that hole with the watch. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, here's what I say. Knowing doesn't help. Like knowing that adversity is coming and that you got to just get through it and like bear down. And this is what makes the story great in the end. Like knowing doesn't change the fact that it is actually difficult and it actually hurts and it's actually challenging you. And I knew all the lessons about adversity and the willingness to work hard and whatever, but it was so difficult and it felt like sheer injustice. And I realized that that's relative. We're all having our own different experiences, but when you're sort of betting your whole life, all your money, all your time on this thing, and you're sort of being denied your ability to engage in in business because whatever the city planning department isn't open or that they're going to get to your permit when they want to, or they're going to deny you for this thing or that thing. It feels like you 
are experiencing injustice and you don't have control. And we were just kids with not a bunch of money. I mean, we had support, but extending out, you know, it's funny you say four months. We've been in this COVID thing for four months. Mm. It gets very real. And two things happen. One is I'm I'm out of money. I'm doing the thing at the grocery store where I pull out my wallet and I'm shuffling through my credit cards and I'm sort of keeping my fingers crossed for an overdraft protection notice rather than just a denied credit card. You know, like that's the state of my life where I'm like, okay, I want this to get approved. I'll probably get overdraft, but at least I can like check out here and I won't be sent home with no groceries. And so the most valuable thing that I owned at the time was a watch that my ex-girlfriend's mother bought me for graduation. It's this tag hewer watch. Like, you know, I watched her pay like 3000 bucks cash for it. I didn't really feel like I needed a watch like that in my life to begin with. So I'm just driving around town to pawn shops, which I hear are places where you take stuff that are semi-valuable and you get cash for them. And no one wanted to buy this watch for anything respectable cash wise. And so a couple of people offered me a couple hundred bucks for it, but I ended up holding on to the watch. But that was sort of the level of of desperation. And then I got what I thought was a break. And I uh, I went to my parents and I said, you know, that woman that lived next to us growing up, Linda, this is an old woman who I would just, you know, climb her her wall and get my baseball out of the backyard every now and then <laughs> sit with her. She bought me some bonds as a kid. I didn't know how many or of what value, but I knew that I had these bonds that I was supposed to use for college. And I said, you know, mom, could you send me those? And so she sent out the envelope and I took it right over to Wells Fargo over there in Santa Monica. And I plopped it on the counter and I said, Hey, I want to cash these bonds. And they said, great, take a seat over there. We'll come out with the information in a second. And I was sitting in the chair and this woman comes out and she's holding a receipt uh, with a number underlined on it. And it said $7,723. And I was blown away. I was like, we're in business. Like (laughs) we are golden. Like we were dead. Now we're alive. This is amazing. And I go, are you serious? And she's like, yeah, I'm serious. We double checked. We'll have the, the cash in your account by the end of the day. And I'm like, oh my God. So I get in my car. I could have drove home 100 miles an hour. I was so happy. I immediately go in and spend $7,725 or $23 at roguefitness.com to get the equipment that we needed to finish opening the gym. And two days later, I get a call from Wells Fargo about a clerical error that the number was in fact $772.30 and that a decimal place got moved over. And I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry that that happened. I (laughs) I I can get you the money back. I just need some time. I've spent it. And they said, oh, we're not really interested in what you did with the money. We need the money back in your account. And they were brutal to me calling me from different branches, whatever, threatening to cancel all my accounts and all these things. And they needed the money in there like yesterday. And so it was so par for the course in that moment that I was like, this thing is going to make me bleed. And now I get to joke about it. But what did you end up? How did you get that money to them? I had to take out a loan from a friend, you know, and so thank goodness for those folks. Awesome. And how did you 
what was the first day like when you guys opened? First day was incredible. And I think that the thing worth mentioning here is sort of what we talked about earlier. There is a natural human attraction to people who are vulnerably going for it. This may be the most simple way to say it. And people observed us in the park for literally two and a half years. And the arc of that experience, if I'm to like personify the perception of it was sort of like, oh my God, that's that's cute. They're like doing a thing in the park. And then it was like, oh yeah, they're still doing that that thing in the park. And then that thing in the park looks pretty cool. And then, man, they got a lot of people out there in the park. And then, dude, they're killing it. Like I, we should go out to the park. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then the gym space opened and it was like, you won't believe it. They did it. Like they're opening this place. It's right over there. You can see it with your own two eyes. I cannot believe it. They did it. And so it was this like communal celebration of a vulnerable effort. And we started with a sort of critical mass of students and that really helped us, you know, but I'll never forget. I mean, that was really helpful. And I wish more gyms started that way these days, but I'll never forget our first non park members this guy called monty freeman him and brett they drove up together they were going to the store and they pull up and they said hey so what do y'all uh what do y'all do here we want to how do you join the gym and i was you know running around with it like a chicken with his head cut off and i was realizing in that moment that this was allegedly a real business and that i had to have something to say to this guy <laughs> and so <laughs> My words were sort of like, well, you know, uh, normally what, what we do in situations like this is, uh, you know, normally I'll just, I'll have you come inside and this is me just making this up as I go. And, uh, we signed up our first member and people kept coming and thank God for just figuring it out as you go. You know, that was Logan Gelbrick from episode 25 of at the end of the tunnel. And I loved how he talked about the aspect of naivety that you basically need when you're taking a leap of faith. And so if you have the inclination to do something bold, but your friends and your family are calling you naive, then you know you're actually right where you want to be. And by the way, it's always the people closest to you who call you nuts and naive and crazy, but that's what makes the leap of faith so much sweeter when you finally land in your purpose and then everybody starts looking at you as their inspiration. Okay, moving right along, we're now going to hear from Sounds True founder, Tammy Simon. So Sounds True is the publisher of my most recent book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. And when I did the deal, I didn't know the backstory of the publisher, but Tammy was gracious enough to come onto the podcast and she tells a story about how she got the idea for Sounds True as well as the seed money and how it all started essentially with a prayer. So here I am, um, I'm working at the Chinese restaurant and another really big development had happened, which is I volunteered at the local community radio station, KGNU, Boulder County Community Radio. Uh, Two reasons. When I was at Swarthmore, I had gotten involved with late night radio. They called it the graveyard shift. And the graveyard shift was between midnight and 6 a.m. And the station manager at the college radio station said, here's a key, do whatever you want between midnight and 6 a.m. No one else wants to be up at that hour. So you remember, I'm having strange outlier patterns at college. And so the idea that I could go midnight, open up the radio station 
play whatever songs I wanted and talk to people and say, you know, I have a quiz. I want to find out how many people feel uncomfortable wearing shorts. Call me, let me know. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever I could think of. And so I knew, I discovered from that, that I loved radio. I just loved it. And, you know, I'd been involved with a high school newspaper. So I knew I liked journalism, but I liked audio journalism the most. I just Mm -hmm. loved it. So that was part of it. And then secondly, I thought, huh, if I go and I volunteer at the radio station, maybe I could have an interview show where I interview spiritual teachers. And if I'm interviewing spiritual teachers, then I can continue the education that I want and need, but I can't get in an academic setting. And Mm -hmm. so I had uh, two shows at the community radio station. One was called the After Hours Audio Amazon, in which I had my music show. And then I had an interview show called Live from Planet Earth, where I interviewed spiritual teachers. So I'm waitressing, I'm doing this volunteer radio thing, and I'm trying to grow and integrate as a person. So I'm going to yoga classes. And at one point, I decided to do a series of rebirthing sessions. And I don't know if you know much about this was something that was big in the 80s, but you do this deep breathing. And as part of this rebirthing process, these 10 sessions, you're given the opportunity to say what your prayer is for your life. And Mm -hmm. as a result of those rebirthing sessions, the prayer that came to me was, God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. Because I knew it wasn't working at this Chinese restaurant and the volunteer radio thing, I didn't, we didn't really have a sense of that being anything but a way to share music and get educated myself. So God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. Was anybody listening to this radio show? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had, you know, I don't know how many people were listening to the (laughs) audio Amazon because that was between midnight and 3 a.m. But, you know, here in Boulder County, late night radio has a small audience. And then the interview show was on Sundays in the morning at 11 a.m. And we had decent listenership, and I knew there was decent listenership because I would get calls after the show, and people would say, great, great conversation. Can I get a copy of that? And I was like, oh, interesting. So I I got a little dubbing deck, you know, one-to-one copy, press the button, and uh, I would make maybe three to five copies a week on a really good week, seven copies. I'd sell them for 10 bucks, and I would just respond to people who called me and say, can I get a copy of that? And I get a copy of that. Interesting. Did you have to split the proceeds with the radio station or? No, the radio station, radio station didn't care. I'm as a volunteer thing. They were like, good on you. So then you quit the waitressing job. So I quit the waitressing job because it just was meaningless and, you know, a certain point after doing it for about nine months. And I had accumulated a little bit of cash, not much. And I thought, I'm going to do this experiment. I'm going to say this prayer, God, I'm willing to do your work. I'm just going to say it again and again and again. And I'm going to see if meaningful work shows up for me. And then I have an entry in my journal that says, I'm running out of money. Looks like my experiment has failed. And the next day, I get a call that my father has died. And he died of heart failure. And soon I learn that I'll be receiving a small inheritance. And my small inheritance is about 50 grand. 
And that was back in 1985. So that would be like $200,000 today. Mm -hmm. So to a 21-year-old person, didn't seem that small to me. It seemed like a lot Mm -hmm. of money, actually. And then a sequence of events unfolded. Do you want to know what that sequence was? I would love to know. I'm I'm, I'm hanging on every word over here. (laughs) Okay. So I get this small inheritance, and the question is, what am I going to do with it? And one of the people that I was interviewing for Live from Planet Earth was a local entrepreneur who was into crystals. So it was pretty weird when I would walk to the radio station from the house I lived in, I would walk by his street front window that had these large crystals. I'm talking like two, three feet tall, like major Mm -hmm. crystals here in Boulder, Mm -hmm. Colorado. And I was like, what's that guy doing with those crystals? Like, What's going on? And then he also had a sign in his window, which was a yin yang sign with a dollar symbol through the center of it and the words transformational economy. So I was also, what's the yin yang sign and the dollar sign doing together? What's going on with this guy? So I'm talking to him, befriending him, trying to learn about crystals. I say to him, I want to do a radio show with you about crystals. And then I share, hey, you've got this transformational economy sign. I just inherited this money. I'm not sure what to do with the money. I don't really want to put it in the bank. I think the bank could invest in things that wouldn't necessarily reflect my values. So I'm not sure what to do with this money. What should I do with it? And he looks at me and he says, why don't you put the money into yourself? And I said, well, that's a really good idea, except I don't know what, I don't know what to do. Like my, me and myself, we're all confused. We don't know what to do. We're, we're walking the streets, looking in people's windows and stuff. I don't know what to do. He looked at me and he said, Tammy, you know what you want to do. You know. Come back in three days and we'll talk about it. And then I walked out of his office and something really odd happened. Something quite odd. The first odd thing that happened was I felt like I wasn't quite walking on the ground after I exited his office. As I was walking on the sidewalk, I felt like I was three feet above the actual pavement. That was a weird feeling. I was like, I feel like I'm walking in the air. This is really freaking weird. This is a really weird feeling. And then the next thing that happened was that I heard some kind of voice. And I don't know what it was, internal voice, external voice. I have no idea. The words I heard were disseminate spiritual wisdom period. And my foot hit the ground and I started walking on the ground. So now I'm walking on the ground and I start thinking about it. Disseminate spiritual wisdom. How am I going to do that? How am I going to do it? Well, books are a great way. I love books, but you know, a lot of people publishing a lot of books. I don't know if that would be something I could just break into. And then I was like, well, there's video, but my parents watched a lot of television. So they were watching television instead of having the kind of conversations I wanted to have. I don't think I want to go into video and that's an expensive medium. And then it was like audio. Oh my, well, look, I love the radio. I love learning by listening. I already have like one of the smallest cottage businesses in the world with my little dubbing deck, making a couple cassette copies a week. I'll disseminate spiritual wisdom through audio. And that was really the beginning of Sounds True. Again, that was Tammy Simon, the founder of Sounds True from episode 64. 
And gosh, when you hear her story with the radio station that she volunteered at and the little tape deck recorder and the crystal shop merchant and the prayer and the metaphysical experience. I mean, when you add all that up, it's really hard to deny that she was ever not on her path. And that's something I think you'll hear in a lot of these episodes as a theme is how when we look back in hindsight, we're always exactly where we needed to be. And we're doing what we need to do in order to move along to the next way station along our path. Okay, speaking of which, let's now revisit Coot Blackson's episode. He told so many great Leap of Faith stories that I included another one of his. This one had me cracking up when I heard it because it's so ridiculous, but that's also what makes it so inspiring. And in this clip, Coot shares the leap of faith that he took when he decided to hunt down the famous movie director Steven Spielberg in Los Angeles with the intention of pitching Spielberg on his inspirational talk show. So let's see how the whole thing happened. Now, is it true you went up to Spielberg at his kid's soccer game to try to... (laughs) True story. Well, well, how did that? How do you even get? How do you find out where Spielberg's kids are playing soccer? Okay. Like, what is that? Just a little backstory. I had this vision <laughs> in in my early twenties of I wanted to be like Oprah, right? I mean, he didn't want to be like Oprah, but I, I was ser- like I was serious about having a TV show and being like Oprah, and came very close. Was offered shows, but before I was offered my show, I started researching Hollywood because I knew nothing about Hollywood and. And I started reading about all of these visionary people with the intention of seeing who could give me my break. And when I read about Spielberg, I felt he was unconventional. This was a guy who jumped the fence at Universal and did unconventional things. So I thought, okay, this guy might understand, you know, and he's visionary and he's rich and he owns DreamWorks. So I read his book and I had a crazy friend who knew someone who, this guy believed in me, but he knew someone who knew Spielberg, producer. So he calls the producer and says, you know, can you introduce Coot to Spielberg? What kind of crazy question is that, right? The guy, so I called the guy up and said, hey, can you introduce me to Spielberg? He's like, are you nuts? I mean, I can't just call Spielberg and just introduce him to some random guy. I said, I want to be the next Oprah, change the world, inspiration, his entertainment, you know, pitch my whole vision to this guy. And I think he was kind of charmed. And he said, look, I can't introduce you to Spielberg because I just can't do it. But I have a friend that his kids play soccer with Spielberg. Let me introduce you to my friend and just chat with him. So I called the friend up, the producer's friend, and I gave him my whole pitch again. I want to do this talk show and change the world and da 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 and you know bring people together. And I want to meet Spielberg. I know you, you your kids play soccer with Spielberg. He's like. I can't introduce you to Steven Spielberg. You're crazy. But, you know, but, but I hear your kids play soccer with Spielberg. Do you know what I'm saying? I said, could you at least let me know where they play soccer? He goes, if you tell anyone that I told you where, I will kill you. But you didn't hear it from me. So another angel, he, he literally tells me, he goes, this is where we play soccer. It was in the Pacific Palisades, uh, you know, Palisades yeah. where the post sure. office is, right? That yeah, little yeah, park. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like 22 years old for something in my mid to early 20s. I put my suit on like I have, I have a suit. This is like back in the day, man. I have, I have this beige suit. I thought I was pimping and I put together a, <laughs> I put together a, you know, Kinko's, go to Kinko's, put together a press kit with my picture on it. 
typed my bio, had this VHS tape of being, I was on one TV show at the time for like two minutes. And I wrote a handwritten letter to Stephen Spielberg. Four pages, handwritten letter, referencing why he should give me a chance, referencing his books. I'm like selling Spielberg in this letter, handwritten. Dear Mr. Spielberg, would you like to launch the global number one TV show that changes the world, you know, on and on? So I show up the first week on a Saturday, 8 a.m. Spielberg's not there. The kids are there playing. Spielberg's not there. I come back the next week, park in this parking lot. Granted, I'm trembling, okay? I think we have to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And this is something I've consistently done in my life. I haven't been the smartest person, the most intelligent person, the richest person, the, you know, fill in the blank. But one thing I do do is I consistently trust my intuition, don't question and push myself outside of my comfort zone, probably more than most. That's been a secret for me. And so I show up at the freaking park, park my car, I look around the corner of this park. Lo and behold, I see Steven Spielberg in the park, in the middle of the field with his wife and his kids playing. One of his kids, he adopted an African-American kid. So I'm like, okay, you know, he's not going to be racist. Okay, this is good. All right, let's go. Okay. So I'm thinking to myself, do I approach him in the middle of the game? I don't know how to do this. Do I approach him in the middle of the game? Or do it would be weird approaching him in the middle of the game. And I wait till the end of the game. I'm hiding behind a freaking tree. Like, <laughs> I'm hiding behind the tree. And 30 people, the, the parents are walking. What I didn't know was there was a stalker in the news. He was being stalked by a stalker at this time. Okay. It was in the news. I didn't know. So I'm hiding, like, I'm hiding behind this tree. And I see Spielberg with his kid and his wife walking. My heart is beating out of my chest. This is the moment, man. Sometimes you have to just seize the moment. You only live once. I mean, hey, so I just jump out from the tree <laughs> and I'm in front of Spielberg and I just start pitching him, okay? Mr. Spielberg, I'm 23 years old. I'm from back in Japan, Japanese, African, grew up in London. I have this vision to change lives and inspire people. I want to be the next Oprah. I'm going at 100 miles an hour. Like, everyone freezes like, oh, shit. He's going to get killed. What's going to happen? All the parents freeze. He freezes. Everyone turns white. His wife, his cake capsule is there. After like one minute, you know, women, very smart, sizes me up. She starts laughing. He looks at her. He relaxes. She laughs. He realizes because she's laughing that I'm harmless. So he relaxes. Everyone relaxes. He's like, whoa, 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 slow down. Start again. I give him my pitch again. I start, I'm 23 years old. And he laughs. He goes, you remind me of myself when I was young. Because what can I do for you? I said, I want to do a TV show with DreamWorks, change the world. I want to make a difference. I want to inspire people. And you're the guy, you know, Sidney Scheinberg gave you a shot at Universal. I want you to give me a shot and let's change the world together. Help me, help you. Let's, I'm just going off. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed. I've never shared this stuff on the podcast. Though. And so... He looks at me and he said, you're very interesting. Give me what you have. I give him my package. He walks off. Everyone is looking like, what the hell just happened? This parent comes up to me. He's like, what was that? What just happened? I go off thinking, honestly, I did it. It was good. Nothing's going to happen. That was a Saturday. Monday morning, I get a phone call. 
This is Mr. Spielberg's assistant. He really was impressed with you and he's going to set up a meeting. We, basically what, what happened was DreamWorks weren't doing any TV talk shows, you know, daytime talk shows, mm-hmm. they were more in film. But he said he was really impressed with you that over the weekend, he called Buena Vista Television at Disney, set up a big meeting for you over there with some TV executive that he wants you to meet. And he's really impressed with you. And so I was like, wow, cut a long story short. I go into this meeting with this Disney executive and she's like, I don't know what the hell happened, but I got a phone call from Spielberg over the weekend raving about this guy. And I don't know if we can do anything, but if Spielberg calls, we have to take the meeting. So anyway, so it led to that beautiful meeting and that was my Spielberg story. (laughs) (laughs) So I think in life, bro, the the essence is if you feel a calling, take the risk, jump, move, Mm. act. Life is short. And I think in so many ways as human beings, we play safe. We play safe because we're afraid of the worst case scenario. We play right. safe because we're afraid we're going to get rejected. We play safe because we're afraid it won't happen. We play safe and then we die full of regrets. So mm. I think the worst thing that happens if we take the risk is sometimes we don't take action because it becomes a sneaky way that the ego uses to protect ourselves from putting ourselves on the line. Because if we don't put ourselves on the line and really commit, then we can always live in the hope of the future fantasy of the possibility of what could be, but we don't have to face the reality. And I think in life, fortune favors the bold. And I think it's when we truly follow, courageously follow our soul, that life begins to truly conspire and support us. Maybe not in the ways we thought, but in the ways that we need. Oh my God, how awesome was that story? In life, fortune favors the bold. I don't know if I could have done that, but I tell you, hearing Coot's story inspires me to at least do my version of that, whatever that is. Okay, we're going to keep it going with a man who they call the singing doctor. His name is Dr. Steven Eisenberg. And if I had to say which one of my episodes that I've re-listened to the most it would probably be Dr. Stevens. Man, the stories he shares are so inspiring. They're so touching and heartwarming. And in this clip, Dr. Stevens shares the story of how he first started down his path in writing songs for his cancer patients and how it was a huge leap of faith for him to start doing it. But one patient of his inspired him to say, you know what? Screw it. This is what I have to do. And I think you're going to like how it turned out. Let's listen in. It all came down to this Again, it was a crossroads. It was Charles, this beautiful guy, Charles, a piano teacher. He was the number one piano teacher in all of Carlsbad, California. And he had metastatic prostate cancer. He came in and we talked about music. After we went through the medical stuff, the rest of the visit was talking about music. Because here he was, he was, he had a successful act in Vegas, where he played piano and he did comedy. He did like a comedy musical act. His stage name was Chucky, Chucky Showalter. And he was this, he was just this beautiful soul. And he was teaching kids how to play piano at his second phase of his career. After one of his audience members died in a drunk driving accident, he decided, I can't be part of this world anymore. I'm going to get into teaching. And so he taught people. And one day he brings in the song for me called The Dirtiest Song Ever Written. He gives me this thing 
and we read these lyrics together and we're laughing and we're just talking about how music changes lives. And at the time, I was debating whether to start writing original songs for patients. Up until that point, I'd brought out the guitar into the chemo room a few times and just had done some spontaneous little Adam Sandler-esque little funny bits like, hey, Edith, tell me about you. You know, what do you have at home? And she's like, I've got 12 cats and I've got six dogs. So there would be a song about Edith and her... Edith's got six dogs and she's got six cats. Oh, Edith. And it would be like a little funny ditty about Edith. And she'd laugh and she'd clap along. And it was a funny distraction. And people said they felt like they were a little, you know, a little cafe or something. And it was fun. But then Charles, Chucky, it was he. I said, Charles, I want to, I'm thinking about doing this thing where we write a song together. And I want you to be the first person because you know the healing power of music. You've experienced it. It's your life. And he said, it would be an honor. And so we started asking him very similar to how, you're, how we're having this talk today. I started asking him about his life, his childhood, his first band called The Spats. And he told me a story where they opened for the Rolling Stones in the 60s. And so all of these all of the things that we were talking about, what he loves, how he met his wife, how what he was like as a child, how he had the act in Vegas, these became the lyrics. These became the lyrics. What moves him, what touches him, what inspires him became the lyrics to his song. And after that, he started getting worse, unfortunately. He started to go downhill as I was putting the finishing touches on the song. He's now on hospice. He was bedridden. He couldn't leave his home. So I called him and I said, I finished the song and I want to come over and play it for you and Ellie, his wife. That was the first time I ever went over to a patient's home. It was the first official original song. I went over to his home. He had the bed. He had the hospital bed in the living room. And I went in there and I played it for him and Ellie. It was called Teaching Me. And it takes you through his life of going from performer to teacher to then how he was teaching me mm. about the beauty of music and the healing power of music. And so I played it for him. He's crying. Him and Ellie are hugging. And he said, you get me. You get me at such a deep level. I feel this deep sense of validation, of peace, knowing that this will live on, that these lyrics will always be here. And then we just hugged it out, and that was the first time it ever happened. And then later, after he passed away, I played it one more time in front of people at his memorial service. All his piano students were there. They played their favorite song they taught him, and his wife graciously, so beautifully asked me to play his song at his memorial service at someone's home. And it was then that I felt, I can't stop doing this. I mean, this is... This was maybe the thing that I was looking for all along. This was somehow bridging those two worlds. When Chuck and Ellie and we played it and the piano students and because and, I felt him in the room. Everyone felt his presence in the room through these simple words, through these simple lyrics. And there was healing in that room. There was healing. There was healing of the grief. You know, people, of course, you feel your grief. 
but there was also a, a deep sense of this is who he was and we love him and we honor him. And this is, this was the first time it happened. Like this was the first time it happened. And I knew I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it. It was maybe the thing that was going to be the answer. Okay, again, that was Dr. Steven Eisenberg, and I love what he said at the very end. He said, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And that is a telltale sign that you have indeed stumbled upon your purpose. It's something that you find yourself doing all the time or you're thinking about it all the time. And the thought just, it doesn't go away until you take that next step. And so you have to take that next step. That is if you want to get rid of the thought. And the other takeaway is that the next steps won't reveal themselves until you take that first leap of faith and put all of your heart into it. Okay, the next clip is from Saul Williams, the slam poet extraordinaire, the actor, the uber-talented musician. I first saw Saul in a movie called Slam, where he played the lead, and it was about a kid who got caught up in the prison industrial complex, and man, Saul played the hell out of that lead role, and in the movie, he recited a poem called Amethyst Rocks, and he sort of became famous for this poem, Amethyst Rocks. And the clip tells the story of how he came up with that poem and also how the leap of faith he took to recite the poem publicly, even though he was not a poet at the time, how that led to opportunities that he could never have imagined. So we started a magazine when we were in Atlanta called Red Clay. And in that magazine, I decided I was going to have a section called Hump, H-U-H question mark. And I would start my section with, a poem and then follow it with an essay, which would be about like social commentary or something. And so I point that out only because I had started writing poems, not to read. I didn't know anything about really like reading poetry aloud too much, but I had started writing poems and essays for my magazine that my friends and I started. And so then I moved to New York to go to grad school at NYU for acting there. And so that first year there, school started in August, I guess, that October, I met some other young artists in my neighborhood in Fort Greene who were like, I'm shooting a short film and you're an actor. I need an actor. Are you interested in being in it? Maybe it was through a friend of my sister or something. And uh, I ended up meeting a few other young artists. And one of them was a girl who was like, my boyfriend's a poet. You should come hear him read. And I was like, okay, I have shit to do. I didn't know anybody really except for the 17 people in my acting program and my family deep in Brooklyn, but I didn't have any peers in the city per se. And so I was like, sure. And so that October, I went to a poetry reading and was blown away because, so this is 1994, October, 1994. It's right at the beginning of, the beginning of really what they start to call backpacker hip hop, right? Because the chronic and all that shit that came out in 92, like there's the heavily exploited commercial hip-hop which has gone really gangster one direction you know so biggie all this shit is happening my people all this shit is happening and we're in new york so we're feeling all that but the de la soul tribe side of things right far side all that far sides it's now becoming called backpacker or underground it's, it's diggable and, planets and, yeah diggable all this shit right and there's a world in between that and I show up at this poetry reading in October 94 and I'm like, oh, oh, 
because I'm seeing a bridge between sort of like the literary arts that we come from the tradition of, the Miri Barakas, the Sonia Sanchez's, the Maya Angelou's, the Bell Hooks, the, the, you know, all these Audre Lords, all this stuff, and the hip hop. I meet all these, I don't really meet them, but I see all these poets perform this night. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I would love to read up one of those things. And so cut to March, 1995, right after spring break from NYU. I had spent that spring break hanging out with some friends from the forest and outside of Seattle, in Washington state. And I flew back to Brooklyn and took the train I don't know. I took the train home from the airport somehow. I don't think that line existed. I don't know how I got back home, but I know it wasn't a taxi. And and dragging my bag home, I pass a window, the Brooklyn Moon Cafe, that's just foggy. And I'm like, must be a lot of people inside. I'm going to put my bag down and come back and see what it is. And on that trip, I had written one poem called Amethyst Rocks. I'd written it on this trip. And I, with that poetry reading I saw in October in mind, like if I ever encounter reading again. And so I put my bag down, I go into that cafe and it's packed and it's a poetry reading. And that girl's boyfriend, who I went to meet that first time, is the host. And he's like, do you want to read something? I'm like, put my name on the list. And so I was the last name put on the list. And I debuted that poem. The people I met that night, I mean, those are, that's Jessica Caremore, that's Yasin Bey, who's most deaf, Talib Kweli, Mums the Schemer, all these people who are still in my world, I met them all that night, March 16, 1995. And I remember it because I read that poem. I had a little Urban Outfitters journal. Urban Outfitters used to have these dope little <laughs> like fake moleskin journals that fit in your pocket. And so I'd written that poem there and the amount of time that I'd spent writing it, when I got up on stage at the end of the night, I was like, I know this thing. I put the journal away and just recited it. And in fact, that wasn't happening a lot at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. And I read that poem. And when I finish, one, as I'm reading, I notice this girl in the front seat, front row crying. And then I finish and the poetry reading is over. And a person comes up to me and is like, hey, Allen Ginsberg's going to be reading at NYU next month. I'd love you to open up for him. Someone else says, uh, Nikki Giovanni and... Sonia Sanchez will be doing a reading at Medgar Evers College next month. We'd love you to open up for them. Someone else says, the Fugees and KRS-One are performing in Union Square at Rock Against Racism. We'd love you to open up for them. Someone else said, the last poets and Gil Scott doing a show at SOB. We'd love you to open up for them. And I had one poem. And March 16th, 1995. (laughs) The friends I made that night are, like I said, still my friends. And the doors that opened are the doors that I walked. Did you know that you killed it after the poem was over? I know you say you saw the woman crying, but did you feel that, like we were talking about earlier, where you had the overconfidence and all that, but your teacher kind of talked you into taking people on a journey. So it sounds like you had all the skills that all kind of came to a head that night, right? You put the thing away, it was your script, essentially, you gave a monologue, you probably started low, you went up high, you took them through that journey, and then it's just like everything just paid off in that moment. Very much that in the sense that what was unique about that night and about that experience was that, so by that time, I had already done at least 20 plays Mm. more, you know? So I was very comfortable on the stage. 
but surrounded by poets, not all of whom were comfortable on the stage. Some were sharing very vulnerable work that they were scared to share. But me, I was literally like studying acting and was really comfortable in terms of performance per se. That moment is best described by the film, The Matrix, that moment where he leans back and you see the bullet in slow mo. <laughs> I felt, I saw the words coming out of me and the way that I related to it at the time, and I think it's the same way I relate to it now, has a, a lot to do with the fact that my dad was a pastor and that he had always referred to his profession as a calling. Mm. And I'd always had to defend myself from old ladies at church with, who would be like, are you going to follow in your father's footsteps? Which I always thought was crazy anyway, because I was like, isn't it supposed to be a calling? You can't make that decision. Not for the ministry. That's supposed to be a calling. What are you talking right. about? Were you paying attention in church? I had that in my head, but I would always defend myself by saying, well, no, uh, the stage, not the pulpit, is my calling. <laughs> <laughs> and that night, I remember reflecting on the idea of calling because I had also identified as a rapper for a long time. I had been a battle MC, of course, as an actor. But here I was in this new world reciting a poem that I had written and I had felt more empowered and felt like I was touching people and myself in ways that made me excited to write more and to explore more of myself. And I felt that I was on the precipice of calling that night. And I did feel like what you said was that all of these things were coming to a head. All the time spent reading and rereading works by Shakespeare and studying plays. And because what studying theater does to your, the type of attention you pay to literature is golden because you're there breaking down like, what does the author mean? What does the character mean? When in the middle of this sentence does the character change your mind? They change their mind in the middle of this phrase. They say it's this, and then they start to look at the stage direction. When did they change their mind when they were saying this? So you're, you're really getting into the nitty gritty of what's between the lines when you're studying what other people have written as an actor. But when you go to write, suddenly all that studying pays off because mm -hmm. now you know that if someone were to sit with your work, they would be doing the same thing. And that intention, that research, all that psychological work goes into the writing process. It was interesting because I was excited. I was more so excited about writing more. Performance was like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But the fact that here was a way in which I could perform things that I had written, and it wasn't that I was dreaming of becoming a writer, it was more so that here was a, a sort of unbuilt bridge that we were tasked with constructing between our literary heroes and our hip hop heroes mm -hmm. and fusing these worlds. Because in fact, I remember thinking quite intensely about the fact that our ears for our generation had been primed differently because we had grown up listening to hip hop because we had listened to Lottie Dottie and with your, with, well, you can't be my, all the stuff where we were just like paying attention. Like, did you hear what he said? Wait, rewind that. <laughs> all of that type of special attention that we paid had us tuned in and primed for the spoken word movement that was to come there. 
because we were listening like that. Mm. And so to take away the music, which is also something that had been part of my practice because it, I spent a lot of time writing rhymes as a kid. And I spent so much time writing rhymes that when I would be in a battle and the beatbox, I've always felt like half of these beatboxes were sloppy. Because mm. I'd be like, no beat, no beat, no beat, yo, no beat, just listen. And I'd go in like that, just words. And so I was already in the mind state when I was a rapper of like, no beat. Let me do my shit so you can hear the wordplay. So it was really all of these things coming to a head. That was Saul Williams from episode 49. Saul is also an amazing storyteller. And that episode goes deeply into his love for music and how he began finding his voice as a musician with the help of none other than Rick Rubin, the famous music producer. So you definitely want to check out the rest of Saul's episode as well. And now for a little contrast, I want to share one last story from Coot Blackson's episode. Remember in that last clip of Coots, he talked about jumping out from behind a tree to surprise Steven Spielberg. And it was just such a funny and great story. But he said that fortune favors the bold. Well, in this clip, he talks about being laughed out of the room and how he hosted an event one time, which he was expecting hundreds of people to show up to, but he only had a couple of people show up. And what he was able to learn from those types of experiences that helped him to strengthen his resolve while he stayed committed to his path. Because that kind of thing will happen to all of us at some point along our path. And when we take a leap of faith and we find that we end up in a situation that appears to be worse, it's not a sign that we did the wrong thing. Again, it's just preparing us for whatever blessings are coming next. During that time, you know, I was really committed to doing a talk show. I had this idea that that was going to be my path and that was going to be my destiny. And I was offered a show. I ended up turning it down. We don't have to go into that. But I was rejected so many times. Like I was laughed out of me. When I say laughed, I was laughed out of meetings. Laughed out of meetings. Embarrassed out of meetings. Pushed out of me. I mean, it was embarrassing, humbling, you know, ego crushing. But we must persevere if you believe in something. Sometimes, though, things don't quite work out the way you thought they were going to work out. And so when I look back now, I'm really glad that the TV talk show didn't happen mm. as much as I wanted it to happen. Because I realize now, had it happened, number one, I wasn't really ready. It would have collapsed. Number two, I probably would have gone down a completely, I don't want to say wrong path, but I would have gone down a path that probably wasn't that aligned because of there were levels of maturity that I still needed to, to deepen into. And I probably wouldn't have gone as deep into my own sort of spiritual, mental, psychological development to be able to do what I've been doing over the last 10, 15 years, you know? And, and so sometimes things not working out is grace. Sometimes things not working out, how we feel is, is a blessing. And so to your question, yeah, this was, again, in the beginning stages of, of coming to America, I was, I think you're talking about when I, when I did a speaking event and two people showed up. This was one of my first seminars. And so up until this point, for like eight months to a year, I was promoting seminars for other people. 
Les Brown, Jim Rohn. So I would go into a company like a Century 21, a Remax, for free. And I would speak for free. And at the end, take five minutes and enroll them into a seminar, right? So I started learning how to sell a little bit. And I was passionate about the product. And eventually, people said, hey, do you do seminars? And do you speak? And, and I thought, well, ah, people are asking. Maybe I'll create my own seminar and promote myself. Real old school stuff. And speaking two, three times a day for free. So I began to promote myself. This is before internet, putting flyers up and calling friends. This was a free event, right? And so I figured I'd had maybe two, 300 people come to my event because I put so much promotion, told so many people, got my hair cut, put my best suit on, go down to, it was in a, I guess what would be considered now Playa Vista on Lincoln, mm-hmm. on the way to the airport, there's a hotel mm-hmm. there. And I think it was the Radisson or something at the time. And so I showed up to this hotel fully expecting 200 people in my free event so that I could enroll them into the paid event. <laughs> And, I, you know, the event starts at 7.30. I'm there at 7. There's no one. I'm there at 7.15. There's no one. I go, well, there's two people. 7.30, the event's starting. There's like two people. Like, I mean, you know, maybe you know. I don't know if you know. But when you put your heart into something and two freaking people show up, man. Mm-hmm. But, but here's the, so I go into the room, and one of the two people is my good friend. So mm-hmm. technically, there's one person. My heart sank. When I say sank, just boom. And I looked at my friend, her name was Barbara. And I said to her, well, you know, there's only two people. So why don't we reschedule and do it again when more people are here and and it makes more sense? She looks at me and she says, only two people. You think it's not worth it? Only two people. Because we're two people. We're here. And we want our transformation. We came for transformation, and we want our transformation. I was just stunned. I kind of realized they were right. I went to the restroom, cried my eyes out because I felt like a freaking failure, pulled my big boy pants up, put my heart in check. But this is a moment my life changed too. Like it was, it was a very humbling moment because I remembered when I was speaking to people, to empty chairs in London, and all I wanted to do was inspire people. And the whole reason I had gotten into this field of self-help in the first place was not for fame, was not for money, was not for accolades. It was because of the true intent to serve people, truly serve people. And I remember that in that moment. I, I reawakened to that in that moment. Like, if it's really about serve, obviously it's nice to do it for bigger audiences, but if it's really about serving people and their souls, there were two people that are waiting to be served. And so I felt very humbled and went back into the room. Two hours, two and a half hours light, I poured my heart. I gave a seminar to two people for two and a half hours and shared my heart. And when they left, they thanked me. They were very grateful. But I sat in the room by myself afterwards and reflected on life and purpose. And I I made another commitment in that moment that I'll never forget by myself in that room. And I, and I said that whenever I have the opportunity to touch a life and someone is trusting me with their evolution, someone is trusting me with the time, with their energy, whenever I have the opportunity to inspire and be entrusted with someone's path in some way, I will not only take that very seriously, I will give 100% and commit to that 100%. And so 
that moment really set my heart straight in a certain way that has really impacted me because sometimes things things were challenging along the way and I kept myself focused on the service you know I kept myself focused on it's about serving souls you know and and I and actually maybe this is a side note but I actually think that in our modern day world of self help that has become very sexy and market all about marketing and social media and Instagram I really think a lot of coaches and forgive me if I'm stepping the boundaries here in terms of whoever's listening but I really think a lot of coaches are in it for the wrong reason they're in it just to be famous they're in it to make a side income they're in it. nothing wrong with that but I feel as coaches as teachers as yogis as facilitators we must come from the place of truly serving another soul because what we do what you do what I do is not just a business you know it's we are participating in another person's soul evolution and i think when you really feel the sacredness of what that is the magnitude of what that is the profundity of what that is it's so humbling that it's a real privilege to be able to participate in someone's path and journey in that way and so i think it's so important that we come from that place of service of true service first and foremost that doesn't mean come make money and reach a lot of people or be whatever but i think we have to get our motivation correct as a foundation mm-hmm. first and foremost and so yeah that was a humbling moment for me like a really humbling moment okay that was the final clip from my interview with Coot Blackson and to listen to the entire episode just go to episode number 75 it is one of the most inspirational episodes I've recorded when it comes to leap of faith stories. So you'll certainly get a lot out of listening to that one in full. And finally, I would like to play a clip from my interview with Mariana Blanco, who founded a plant-based restaurant in Mexico City called Los Lucers. I've been to Los Lucers several times, and that's how I first met Mariana. And her backstory is as awesome as they come. She was teased by her drunk friends for not drinking and not choosing to party or eating meat. And they basically called her a loser. And later she started making these plant-based burgers from her kitchen and then delivering them on her bicycle. And it evolved into the plant-based restaurant in the Roma section of Mexico City called Los Lucers. And in this clip, she talks about deciding to work a part-time job at a coffee shop and how that essentially led her to her purpose. It was crazy because I was really bad at math. I hated it. I was like, no, you know, it's not for me. I don't understand. I'm like stupid. And I remember that I needed to pick a career. It's insane how is like people doing that? But I remember that I asked, what's the career that doesn't like have math? And they said, journalism. I said, perfect. But nothing is a coincidence for me, or I do believe that. But since I was a kid, I was writing stories. I was talking to people and then writing my dreams in the next morning. I remember when I went to college, it was very boring. I was like, I don't know what is this. I don't know why I need to to read this. 
And it was really hard. And then I needed to have a part-time job. And I right. went to, to a coffee shop. I don't know why. I thought in a way that it was like <laughs> kind of glamorous. And I remember that in the interview from college, it was like 10 minutes walking that place. And the owner said, no, 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 you go to the second location. And I was like, why? No, no, no. It's like, it's very far. And he said, trust me. And I was working in that coffee shop for 29 days without realizing that at the 41st life floor, there was this huge and very important television network. And they hired me as an assistant of everything. And I was like, what? Me? Why? And then I quit the school because you, I mean, you needed to pay. And then we had money problems. So somebody came into the coffee shop who worked on the 41st floor and said, we really like you. We want you to come up. So, so it was uh, uh, the building uh, of the World Trade Center. And every morning I was like seeing these business guys, you know, all black and very like fancy, very miserable. But then in the middle of the day, I was watching these guys like very punks with like shirts and long hair. And they were like ordering coffee every morning, every day. And then I was talking to them. Hey, what do you do? And they were telling me, oh, we are like producing this TV show or we are doing this, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And they were just talking to me. One day there's lady. I thought that she was very important because she was like very serious, very like mm -hmm. elegant. And I made her coffee that morning and I said, oh, so you work there. What do you do? And she was like, mm. Oh, I'm a, she was like huge in that television network. And then I said, I remember that I said, oh, so I'm studying journalists as you. I said that. <laughs> and she said, and what do you do here? And I said, I'm helping with my bills. And she said, okay, so what time are you free of work? I said, 8 p.m. She said, okay, so change your clothes and look for me. I will be waiting for you. I was like, okay, cool. But I thought that it was like, I don't know. And I was like paying all the coffees with my tips. <laughs> I was like being very friendly because I'm like that, you know? And at 8 p.m., I was very happy to go to that floor because the view, it's amazing. And when I got there, the ladies from the reception, they were like very excited, like, what is happening? I was like, I don't know, maybe it's a, like a tour from the from all the offices and I don't know. And all the guys that I was making their morning uh, coffees, they were like, hey, Mariana, what are you doing here? Blah, 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 making jokes with me. And she said, tonight she's working here. Mm. I was like, what? And they hired me. That day, my life changed, you know, mm -hmm. because I have moments in my life when I was 
finally seen by someone, mm. someone care, someone saw something in me. And from that, everyone, without asking any help, they were trying to help. Like, Mariana, we need a new writer for this newspaper. And I was like, but I don't know how to do it. And they were like, don't worry, we are helping you. And I was like, okay, Mariana, we need this, this, this. Because I was living by my own when I was 17. I chose mm -hmm. to move out and I was struggling. I was surviving every day. So in a normal day, I had three to four jobs mm -hmm. and I was very happy. I was learning and I was doing everything by no following any rules. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to explain it, but those guys or my teachers, they were like teaching me how to learn and have fun at the same time. But yeah, I mean, it was like meant to be. Again, that was Mariana Blanco from episode number 72. And I love how she felt that that weird trust that she had in her inner compass placed her on a path that in hindsight seemed like it was very much meant to be. I would recommend listening to her full episode just as I recommend listening to the other full episodes. And I hope that listening to these various clips has inspired you to take the leap of faith wherever you are and or to follow your heart and to trust in your inner guidance. And one thing I will say about being at this stage in my life, where I'm currently in my 40s, is you realize that no one is going to give you permission to take the leap. If anything, they'll tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't take the leap or why you should play it safe. And so it takes constant reframing of our experiences and constant reinforcements by hearing stories like these to see that really at the end of the day, if we want to maintain our sanity, if we want to keep the light turned on inside, then taking the leap of faith is our only option. And the sooner we take it, often the better things turn out. So that's the intention behind sharing not just this compilation, but all of these podcast episodes. And I want to thank you again for supporting this podcast throughout the year. It means so much to me. And I will make sure to list all of the episodes that we featured in the compilation in the show notes, which you can always find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you will see information about everything that I'm up to. You'll see information about my most recent book, Knowing Where to Look, which is available in all versions, including audio which is read by yours truly, and it comes with bonus commentary. You will also get information on my Happiness Insiders community, which is where you'll find the notorious 108-day meditation challenge. I'm pretty certain that being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. So if you're ready to take your inner work to the next level, just go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and start your free trial. Finally, if you can subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating or review for the podcast, that would be the best way to help share these conversations. It only takes 10 seconds to rate it. Just look at your phone screen and open up the Apple Podcast app if it's not already open. Click the name of this podcast at the end of the tunnel. Scroll down past the previous episodes and you will see the five blank stars and just click the fifth star, the one all the way up to the right, and you've left a rating. 
Thank you in advance for that, and make sure you are subscribed so you're notified about the next story from the end of the tunnel. And until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.